Greetings and welcome to the AAOP podcast, the podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Tom Weber. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Don Buse. Dr. Buse is a licensed psychologist who specializes in helping people live well with chronic diseases, including chronic pain. She is a clinical professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and an assistant professor in the clinical health psychology program in the Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology at Yeshiva University. Dr. Buse serves as a member of the board of directors of the American Headache Society. She has been an investigator and co-author of multiple studies of migraine and a recipient of multiple research and professional awards for her work on headache conditions. Dr. Buse, thank you so much for joining us today on the AAOP podcast. Thank you, Dr. Weber. It's an honor to be here and hello to all the listeners. Well, Dr. Buse, it's always fascinating to me to hear some of the background of how people come into the world of pain management. Uh, And psychology, I know, is a very broad field, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that when, when most people think of a psychologist, they're probably not thinking of someone who's managing chronic pain or headache conditions. So I would love it if you would please share with us how you came to a career, first off in psychology, uh, and then uh, became involved specifically with chronic pain and headache. Oh, what a fun question. Thank you for asking this. Well, Tom, when I was training, I uh, started to hear about work of Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical School. And back in the 70s, Dr. Benson, who worked in the cardiology department, um, was thinking about using transcendental meditation for people with heart conditions. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of technology going on in the really sophisticated treatment of cardiac conditions. And I've heard him in person tell the story of his experience of coming to the Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital cardiology department saying he wanted to try transcendental meditation. And, you know, he got really good responses with people living with cardiac conditions. And while we thought this was kind of new in the U.S., of course, this is thousands of years old in the world, uh, the idea of using breath, focusing thoughts, and kind of calming the sympathetic nervous system. But he was one of the real pioneers who started looking at that intersection between thoughts and behaviors along with physical health. And then um, John Kabat-Zinn in Western Massachusetts started doing a stress management program for pain. They start with low back pain. And he tells a great story of putting up flyers in the basement of the hospital and come up with a stress management group. Well, of course, the rest is history because his work just really paved the way for the real value of modifying thoughts, modifying the sympathetic activity, the fight, flight, or freeze response that we all spend too much time in these days and really starting to look at the pathophysiology and connection between sympathetic activity and pain and how they're so intertwined and how either really activates the other. So as I was training, I started reading works by both of them and and the works by Herbert Benson had been out for some time and the works by John Kabat-Zinn were fairly new. And I just thought this was such an exciting field to 
to be able to make these kinds of positive changes for people living with chronic pain conditions. So I would say they were two folks who inspired me. And then I had some terrific mentors along the way in medical psychology and my internship and my fellowship um, in, in Boston, including a couple psychologists who were just terrific mentors and a couple of physicians who are terrific mentors. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times we all meet mentors along the way who we might've gone in this fork or that fork when you really start to get into to niches. And I would say there's a couple of people who stand out as, as really being important mentors and guide guides for me along the way to be in a really tiny little subspecialty. Now there's only a couple dozen headache psychologists that you really think of who are pretty active in the U.S. or around the world in terms of when it comes to doing research or um, or teaching at, at the medical schools, the graduate schools. But it's a, a, a growing field. And I think the opioid crisis of the, the past decade and beyond um, continues to make the psychology of pain so important. And I'm always amazed at how wonderful people in the dentistry field are with their verbal analgesia. They are so good with words because they have to take people who are entering a space that may make them anxious just by even entering the building, just even the thought, or they may have not wanted to come in or they may have had a bad experience. And now you have to do everything in your power to calm and soothe and relax them and you're going to do something that might be a bit painful and it's probably going to sound pretty loud. And I've just been amazed by the psychological skills of professionals in the dentistry field. I just have a lot to learn from you guys. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that because dentists sometimes get a bad rap as being the, the painful people, right? I, really, I think dentists are some of the greatest pain relievers there are. Um, so I, that, that makes me want to ask you, if I may, you know, you talked about putting a patient at ease in an anxious situation. For a lot of patients, it, it's anxiety inducing even to go to any kind of a healthcare provider. I'm yeah. sure you've experienced that as a psychologist, right? You know, even though we've made a lot of strides, there's still sometimes a bit of a stigma attached to seeking, um, psychological care in a lot of cases. So what have you, uh, I guess, what have you seen that's helpful? Are there any general principles that come to your mind when you think of helping a patient to, um, to feel safe in the environment of care? What a good question. Absolutely. I think you and I both work in some of the most kind of stigmatized fields where people may come in with a lot of pre-existing anxiety, worry, and misinformation. So we're both starting from, you know, a little bit behind, behind the game, and we have sometimes to make up that ground. Um, some things that can be really helpful for, let's say, a, a primary care or general neurologist who's going to make a referral to, to a specialist, be it in the dentistry field, be it in the mental health field, um, the way that referral is made can make a very big difference. And a lot of times when I get referrals, it's from colleagues who know me personally. And they'll say, hey, I know Don Buse. Here's the kind of thing you're going to do with her. Um, that can be very helpful. I have a website. And on my website, I have a couple uh, 
guided relaxation exercises. And I tell colleagues who are referring to me to check out the website and press play and let the patient listen to a couple minutes of a diaphragmatic breathing or a guided imagery. Imagine you're at the beach and say, hey, this is what you might do. One of the things you might do. Or um, uh, years ago, I was interviewed on a news program and so about biofeedback and they actually took some nice video of actually doing biofeedback and so I put that on my website too and so I'll tell my colleagues or anyone referring to me or anyone in mental health play 30 seconds of that video let the person see it and what happens is I think it demystifies and calms the person to even encourage them to even follow through on that referral so I think that that's some of the things that happen before they even come to your door or my door um, I think once they come to either of our doors, um, people like information. It's helpful to know what to expect, what's going to happen. Again, in my experience with, with going to dental professionals, um, I've had some great experiences where people will say, now I'm going to put this here and it might feel like this. It might sound like this. You can expect this. It's going to last this long. And I find that personally very helpful. I like to know what to expect. And um, I took my six-year-old for his annual checkup yesterday and he had to get his flu shot. And, um, and he did it and he did a good job. And we talked about it in the car on the way there. We talked about inside, what it was going to feel like, how the, how the alcohol was going to feel cold first and wet. And then the shot was going to be uh, a sting, but it's going to be over before you know it. And then we're going to rub it. Um, and then of course he is going to get some kind of treat and his doctor came through with stickers and a book. So, um, but he knew that in advance and a lot of our pain experiences, we all know comes from perception. So, um, you know, if someone maybe let's say one person's giving birth and having a baby, the other person's passing a kidney stone, they have very high levels of abdominal pain. And yet, a couple minutes later, one person is overjoyed and flooded with oxytocin and just one of the most joyous moments of, of life. Hopefully, everything went well. And the other person has just passed this darn kidney stone. And it's amazing how much our perception of meaning of the pain, our understanding of how long it's going to last, what it's going to feel like, matters. And when it comes to things like, let's say, migraine, for example, somebody doesn't know they have migraine yet. Maybe they're having an aura. Maybe they're having that early pain and they jump to oh my God, do I have a brain tumor? Um, have I had an aneurysm? And rightfully so, our nervous system is beautiful in its elegance of survival. And it puts us right into the fight, flight, or freeze mode. And our heart rate speeds up, our respiratory rate speeds up, and we release all these stress hormones so that we can run away from a tiger. And as we all know, when we're sitting still, we don't need our blood pumping and our adrenaline racing and glucose rushing through our system, but that's what our body does. When you add that fear response to a pain response, the pain experience is amplified. Um, again, back to a survival, we want to know if we're in pain, you want to get out of that situation. Well, you're not getting out of the dentist chair, <laughs> so we're going to do the opposite now. Bring it down, slow down the heart rate, pace the breathing distract, talk about your favorite vacation, talk about where you're going next, talk about, you know, um, your favorite meal to make at home, distract, calm and soothe. And that simple breath is where it all starts. The shortest breath, just blow it all out and let it fill back in. Now that took um, a couple seconds. 
And in that couple seconds, we would have started to reverse that sympathetic activation, move into the parasympathetic rest and digest. We'd start slowing down the heart rate, relaxing the muscles. And of course, you all know better than me, those tense muscles are going to just feel every injection. They're going to feel every touch. Whereas those relaxed muscles and the distracted brain is not going to notice it. It's not on alert. So we just want to bring in all that good, calming, soothing, breathe, relax, talk about something real happy, talk about your favorite hobby, and keep distracting them. So that's something I think that goes across pain from acute pain to chronic pain. The meaning. What does it mean? Are you in danger? Is it horrible? Is it unbearable? Or is it you know, childbirth is going to be terrible. It's going to be a 10 out of 10. It's going to last for a while. And then you're going to have a beautiful baby. So meaning gives us a lot of the fear and the pain intensity experience. That That is all such a fascinating um, set of ideas that you've discussed there. And the resources that you mentioned on your website sound like they're very useful. I mean, if you don't mind, I'll mention your website. Uh, it's donbuse.com. That's D-A-W-N-B-U-S-E.com. Lots of great resources there for clinicians and for patients. Uh, and, you know, discussing the meaning of the pain made me think of how important and powerful uh, diagnosis can be. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you've experienced this many times. I've seen in, in quite a few patients that in many cases, what people really want to know is what's going on. Sometimes even more than treatment, they want to understand what is happening to me. Uh, and when you can reassure them that uh, this is not going to shorten your life, it may be very painful, but this is what this is. And this is how we understand what's going on in your body and in your brain. Uh, there's a lot of power in that. So those are such great principles that you threw out. Um, you know, speaking specifically of migraine, Let's talk further about some of your work with that. Uh, you, along with Dr. Richard Lipton uh, and other colleagues, have published many studies of migraine comorbidity. Some of these studies include the, uh, the AMPP, the American Migraine Prevalence and Prevention Study, another study called the CAMEO, or the Chronic Migraine Epidemiology and Outcomes, uh, and then the Migraine Symptoms in America Study. Uh, so can you please highlight some of the findings from these migraine studies? Absolutely. This has been an area of such interest, and we've found fascinating results from these various studies. Um, as everyone knows, comorbidity is the greater than chance occurrence as opposed to a co-occurring condition to a conditions at the same time. And migraine, boy, it travels with a lot of friends. It has a lot of comorbidities. It's got comorbidities that are cardiovascular, like stroke, myocardial infarction, psychiatric, depression, anxiety, panic disorder, bipolar, personality disorder, suicide attempts, neurologic like epilepsy, TMD, TMJ, sleep conditions, insomnia, restless legs, sleep apnea, poor sleep quality, respiratory and inflammatory conditions, allergic rhinitis, asthma, dermatologic diseases, um, rosacea, and a host of chronic pain conditions, fibromyalgia, Crohn's disease. So there are quite a few comorbidities of migraine. Um, we don't always know 
the cause? Are they unidirectional? One causes the other or predisposes to the other. Are they bidirectional? Either predisposes to the other. In fact, depression and migraine seem to be bidirectional. Someone with a first incidence of depression is three times more likely to evidence migraine later. Someone with a first incidence of migraine is five times more likely to evidence depression later than someone without. Um, is there a shared underlying reason? And a lot of these, we can hypothesize very logical reasons, shared underlying etiology, uh, genetic predispositions, uh, neurotransmitters, you know, migraine depression, both work on the serotonergic system. So there's a lot of very interesting things to think about in migraine comorbidities. It offers opportunities and limitations opportunities like sometimes we can treat two things with the same treatment be they pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic depression is a great example we can do a, a preventive pharmacologic therapy that's also an antidepressant or we can think about a cbt that helps both um, but there's limitations too so if we have someone with migraine and a cardiovascular history uh, triptans might be contraindicated if they've had an mi so uh, we've got strengths and limitations here, but knowing these comorbidities is very helpful for us. So in the MAST study, we surveyed more than 77,000 people without migraine, 15,000 with migraine, and gave them a list of about 20 conditions, which we believed to be comorbid, and a couple that we didn't think would be, just to see if there were people who were just saying yes to everything. And of, of those conditions, um, we found very high comorbidity in, for insomnia, depression, anxiety, gastric ulcers and GI bleeding, angina and epilepsy, among other conditions. And then we wanted to go a little deeper. And what was interesting was we also said, what was their monthly headache day average? And rates of all of those were higher with those who had higher monthly headache days. So people with 15, 20, 30 days of headache a month had higher rates of all of those than people only one or two headache days a month. And then we also wanted to go a little deeper and we asked, what was your average headache pain intensity when you have a migraine attack, zero to 10? We found that rates of all of the conditions I just mentioned, or most of them that I mentioned, were higher if they have average headache pain intensity higher. So kind of interesting. And, you know, I invite listeners to speculate on that one. I, I'm not quite sure exactly what's going on there. Is it more severe disease? Is it less well controlled? Is it more refractory. Not sure what's going on, but just some interesting things. In the AMPP study, we followed 24,000 people for several years, every year in a row. And um, there we did a deeper dive and we looked at what happened one year to the next. So of people with episodic migraine, migraine on fewer than 15 days in a month, how many people had chronic migraine the next year? And about two and a half percent if we didn't look at any other variables, we'll have chronic migraine the next year. Well, turns out if you've got depression, anxiety, if you snore, if you've got sleep apnea, if you've got a higher BMI, there's this whole range of risk factors that increase that risk of having chronic migraine the next year by three, four, five times. So something goes on there between the interaction between those two conditions. Again, we don't know. Are they both signs that disease is worse? Are they signs that disease is refractory, that someone somehow has gotten in kind of a negative cycle where they're constantly activated in the trigeminal vascular system? They're just not kind of calming down their nervous system between attacks. 
we're not sure what's going on there. But um, just to give you one more really interesting tidbit, went even further and looked at depression. And we broke down that depression into none, mild, moderate, and severe. And, you know, I said, you know, if you had depression, you were a couple times more likely to have chronic migraine the next year. Well, rates varied by how severe your depression was. So if you had severe depression, you were three and a half times more likely to have chronic migraine the next year, as opposed to mild depression, and you were, you know, double your risk. So really interesting clinical implications for comorbidities, as well as, of course, we are at heart, we're all healthcare professionals, we care about our patients, we know that living with one painful condition is very hard. Adding these comorbidities really just brings down quality of life. Um, whatever they are, even if they're not psychiatric comorbidities, especially if they're not psychiatric comorbidities, you're probably going to bring up some anxiety, some worry, maybe some depression, maybe feeling more hopeless and helpless about controlling your condition and getting back to better health. So it's helpful for us in whatever profession we're coming from, whichever we're, we're, we're subspecialties who really work together as a team, you and I, and um, it's helpful for us to all kind of keep these comorbidities in mind because any one of us might see them, diagnose and refer on to the right person who may even be a dermatologist, maybe a cardiologist, um, or even just, as you were talking about before, knowledge being so encouraging and reassuring. We can also just explain People with migraine also have a lot of these other conditions. Don't be scared, don't be surprised, and don't feel like it's your fault. This is just how it goes. But let's check out and get you to the right specialist to get everything cared for. That is all a very interesting and helpful. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, when it comes to seeing patients with migraine, you know, just to zero in on one of those comorbidities that you highlighted, that with depression and depression severity being such a, a profound risk factor for chronicity, uh, it seems like that would suggest that we clinicians who see migraine patients should be screening those patients for depression. Uh, do you have any uh, particular screening tools that you particularly like or favor for screening for depression in headache patients? Yes, sir, I do. I love the PHQ-4. It is two items from the DSM-5 depression criteria, the two hallmark items, and the two hallmark items of the anxiety criteria. You can fit, you know, patients can fill it out in a matter of seconds. It is really well validated. It's free for use and it's a nice monitor over time and it doesn't feel too invasive. You know, the first criteria being sadness, but the second criteria being anhedonia. And a lot of times, a lot of patients will really connect with that question. You know, are you still doing your hobby of X? Are you still working on your sailboat? Are you still golfing? You know, and when you get that, uh, not... Not really, you know, when you get that they've lost enjoyment in things, often that's a nice entree. And then it has the two anxiety questions. So that's called the PHQ-4, Patient Health Questionnaire for Item Screener. Um, easy to find online and absolutely free for use, not copywritten. The creators want everyone to use it and very well validated. We use its sisters in uh, its big sisters in all most of our research. We use the full version of the PHQ nine depression, PHQ seven anxiety in our big epidemiologic studies. Those are also absolutely free for use, 
researchers want you to use them and really well validated. So you can always have the screener um, on an intake or a, a follow-up visit, and then you can have the full version back in your office if you felt like, okay, let's go a little deeper. All right. Well, one, uh, I guess, broad realm of treatment that is really important for headache patients and, and maybe especially for chronic headache patients or, or headache patients who suffer from the comorbidities that you've highlighted would be uh, non-pharmacological behavioral uh, interventions and modifications. And you're an advocate certainly for lifestyle modification uh, as an integral co co component in the care of chronic headache patients. Uh, one of the things that can be a challenge with that is that uh, we've all seen patients that come in with the expectation that they just want the doctor to fix them or cure their problem. You know, I, I will often ask in my initial evals, you know, what, what do you expect to get out of this visit? And uh, I love getting the answer. And sometimes I do get this answer that I, I want to understand. I want to know what I can do to help manage this. I love getting that kind of an answer. The one I don't like getting is, I just want you to fix me, doc, you know? So when it comes to dealing with that kind of a, a view, what have you found to be helpful in inviting patients to kind of reorient their understanding of the need for self-care and to help them accept the need for lifestyle changes? Oh, what a great question. Well, we're all human and you and I are both human, Tom, and we know that even for us, I'll say for me, trying to eat healthy and take care of myself, get enough sleep. I've got two little kids. I've got a job um, trying to exercise regularly, even with my good intentions. I do not live up to my aspirations. So I think it's okay for us to start out and say, we know these are not easy things to do. We know this is challenging for everyone, but we've got a short list. We've got just half a dozen or less things that are scientifically known to make a difference in your migraine management. And we like to use the acronym SEEDS, S-E-E-D-S, sleep, exercise, your eating and drinking, staying hydrated. And, and our eating is a, a pretty um, basic healthy diet with trying to eliminate unhealthy fats, keep a balance of more healthy fats, but it's not real fancy. You know, you may have seen a lot of migraine diets out there with elimination diets, diets that get real specific. The, the, the science doesn't necessarily hold up. We have to go to that level. It's eating on a regular basis, any kind of healthy, balanced fruits, nuts, grains, proteins, and keeping basically the healthy fats. It's a low inflammation diet that is helpful. So again, when we say something like that to a patient, that doesn't sound too overwhelming. Add some salmon, take out some hamburgers, um, and um, stress management. And, and, and that's it. That's our list. We don't have to go much deeper than that. Um, I guess I should have said in the diet, we'll keep the caffeine low. But there's some really interesting, lovely data that, that, that friends of mine have done at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, showing what triggers are really reliable for patients with migraine, people with migraine. Turns out they called it surprisal units. How surprising is it? Turns out what you do from one day to the next, the changes make a difference. So the nervous system really likes stability. Let's call it a boring routine. Same time to sleep, same time to wake, eating 
every couple hours with a, a healthy kind of balance of, of, of nutrients, um, not changes in the stress. Did you know not only are high levels of stress potential triggers, but relaxation after stress, first day of your vacation, first day of spring break after finals week, first day of your honeymoon, we call it honeymoon headache. We call it weekend headache. Turns out the change in the nervous system just throws things off. So we want to keep someone on a regular routine. And again, you talked about people like information. That's information, which is probably really interesting to someone. And if you said something like that, now you've got the motivation for why might they want to go do biofeedback? Why might it matter for them to practice relaxation breathing? Why does exercise, does exercise actually make a difference in migraine? Now, once we know that something can make a difference and believe it, there might be a different level of motivation. It's easy to say it's not easy. That's true. But now there at least might be a glimmer of, okay, this is something that I should consider doing. In that same vein, uh, I wanted to ask you about a concept called motivational interviewing, which I I think probably fits hand in glove with what you've just described. Uh, And those of you who have listened to earlier AAOP podcast interviews will remember that term, which we discussed a little bit with Dr. Charlie Carlson in an earlier interview. But I would really appreciate hearing your take on that, Dr. Buse, if you could just maybe provide a broad outline of some of the principles of of motivational interviewing. What is that? And uh, are there ways that non-psychologist providers can employ motivational interviewing techniques when we care for our chronic pain patients? Well, thank you. This is a great topic. So thank you for mentioning it, Tom. Um, Absolutely. Everyone wants to apply motivational interviewing all the time from whatever subspecialty, specialty you work in. So motivational interviewing is a way to talk to patients for effective shared decision-making. It really breaks down that that older traditional model of the healthcare professional as the authority and the patient kind of just listens and follows along and does what they're told. It's the idea that changes and treatment decisions are made together with the two people talking, checking out and checking in with the patient about Do they have concerns? Do they have pre-existing information which is making them not believe or align with what you're saying? Do they have concerns about what's going to be challenging, uh, reasons they don't want to make these changes? And it's real important to remember that, you know, humans and animals alike, we all do things for logical reasons, whatever it is. Um, even though it may not seem healthy, there, there's reasons why it's comfortable or there's reasons why it's easy. There's reasons why we're, we're choosing these certain lifestyle decisions. So the way to often use motivational interviewing to get someone kind of on board is to say, how is this condition, you know, how's your, your facial pain, how's your migraine affecting your life? And they're going to come back with an answer that's not a clinical trial answer. They're not going to say, I experienced... 14 days a a month with with headache and it affects my work productivity. They're going to say, you know what? I used to coach my kids soccer team and I can't do it anymore. And I really feel bad about that. And I really would like to get back out there. Now you've got your shared motivation and all of the treatment plans and all the lifestyle recommendations, the behavioral recommendations, the medication recommendations, the intervention recommendations, you're going to keep tying back to, we want to get you back on the field. And here's some ways that we think we can do that. Now you've come to a goal together 
with a shared motivation and you want to keep tying things in. So that's a little bit of, of motivational interviewing in, in a nutshell. It's shared, it's goal-oriented, and it really looks to see where the patient's coming from. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, are there any other uh, non-pharmacologic um, perhaps behavioral therapies that you uh, would like to mention for migraine patients that you haven't already? Absolutely. Well, we've got a big three that have decades of use, and those are going to be cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, and relaxation therapies. And they're often used together, or they might be used separately. And if you're looking for providers for those on my website that you mentioned, donbuse.com under resources, I've listed the scientific organizations in the U.S. for each of those, and they all have search providers, find a provider. I know it's not always easy, but most of that should be covered under a patient's insurance as long as they use their health and behavior CPT codes. And those were created more than 10 years ago specifically for health psychologists working on medical, physical conditions. Um, so those are the big three, really well established. They're in all the guidelines and um, have a lot of evidence behind them. And then two areas that have been developing really well established in other disease states, and we've been doing more and more research in the migraine space and other severe headache space, is going to be mindfulness-based therapies mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy. And acceptance and commitment therapy is um, a something that evolved out of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it really focuses on what are the patient's values and goals and aligning behaviors to those values and goals. So now we've got about five different ways to go in the behavioral space. A lot of times what I recommend is if someone is interested in any of them, start there. Just capitalize on what they're interested or excited about. Any door in is a, is a place to start, and they're going to get a lot of um, kind of those, those motivations, learning about the healthy lifestyles and starting to figure out some of their motivations, whichever route they start, they're going to get benefits. So, um, so that's usually what I recommend is go with what the patient's interested in. Secondly, go with um, anyone that you have a referral for. It's going to help a lot. Patients do have a hard time finding providers. And so one thing to think about is start to build your team. Find some psychologists or could even be an occupational therapist who does biofeedback. Find someone around town. If you don't have someone in your institution, if you don't already have a connection, make a connection, build a connection, reach out. If you find someone who's good at biofeedback, they're good at CBT, they don't necessarily have to be an oral facial pain expert or a headache expert because they're going to have those CBT, those biofeedback, those relaxation skills. Get to know them, maybe send them, a, you know, a, have them listen to this podcast, let them to know, you know, they can start to learn some of that medical background in, in these topics. But if they've got the biofeedback skills, the CBT, and kind of the motivational interviewing style already, you can cultivate that relationship and make them one of your regular referral sources. And then you can say, hey, I refer to Dr. Smith, patients really like her and they usually do this with her and let me know what you think. Now that referral is coming with your stamp of, of, of kind of endorsement and confidence and that's going to really help the patient follow through. Very good. Well, Dr. Buse, as you mentioned, uh, not only are patients human, but healthcare providers are plenty human too. And you have been one to encourage uh, lifestyle 
a modification, not only among patients, but among healthcare professionals. I'm curious, what are some of the habits that you see, habits of healthy living that are frequently neglected among those of us in healthcare? And what suggestions do you have specifically for us uh, providers who struggle with those habits but want to turn things around? Oh, yes. Thank you for mentioning this. This is so important. And I like to end as many talks as I give as possible with this. If we don't have you, we are in big trouble. You must care for yourself. You know, just like when you're on a flight and the flight attendant says, put your oxygen mask on your on yourself first before helping those around you. You know, if you're passed down the floor, you can't help anyone around you. But I think we all as healthcare professionals, we went into the caring profession because we like to help people. And often we do it at the expense of ourselves. And this, you know, 2021, 2020 has been rigorous like never before on healthcare professionals, demanding and asking more of healthcare professionals than ever. Rates of burnout were already high among all specialties, including dental specialties, including pain management, including neurology, including psychology. They were already high. And now we've gone into a, a situation where a lot of people are experiencing compassion fatigue and compassion PTSD. It's been a rough couple years. So more than ever, we need to sit back and say, I need to practice what I preach. Now, this isn't so easy. And I don't want to say you need to sleep better and you need to eat better and you need to take care of yourself because a lot of times our hands are pretty tied and we have administrative and institutional folks making decisions that we don't have a lot of say over. And that can lead to a real feeling of kind of helplessness and hopelessness. So finding those places where we can make some decisions, where we can have some control, be it over our time, be it over what we do, be it over those the, the time out and the time away is really important. A lot of times we don't take our time off. We don't leave when we could. We don't take those vacations because we've always got so much more to do and we're always pushing. And I think that's the nature of medical professionals. I think that's how we got here. And I think that's who we are. Um, but I think it's pretty important to check on how you're doing. And if you've never taken a, a burnout test, I would say go online and look for the Maslach burnout inventory. Just take a quick scan and you know see how you are. Or even, um, you know, talk to a loved one, talk to a friend, a trusted coworker, and and really see, kind of check in with how you're doing because it's really important that you are watching along the way before you develop medical conditions or psychological conditions and these kind of long-term stress responses. What can you start doing, little little quick breaks, little short breaks? You know, can you take a three-day weekend instead of waiting? two years to take a 10-day vacation? Can you, in between patients, can you walk out of one exam room, you stand out in the hallway and you do a breath cycle and then you walk into the next exam room? Um, are there ways to fit in exercise here and there that are maybe shorter, faster, easier, but you're getting little bits of it here and there? What are ways that we can start incorporating these healthy lifestyle that we really recommend for all of our patients for ourselves. And I think a lot of it is just even acknowledging and um, permitting ourselves, allowing ourselves to, to take a breath and think about our needs first, because we weren't trained that way. 
And we weren't selected that way. We were selected because we're really go-getters. And dentistry professionals are really, really high on that intensity and um, and um, accomplishment scale just by nature. And so, you know, here you're taking racehorses and you're saying, well, you know, go smell the flowers out in the pasture a little bit. This isn't in your nature. And yet I'm going to tell you, I am going to really ask you to think about one little tweak you can make for yourself this month. Just start with that. Something little. Do it for four weeks. And then check back in with yourself on how you're doing. And we'll invite all of you listeners to take that challenge and look for that tweak. Dr. Don Buse is clinical professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and assistant professor in the clinical health psychology program at Yeshiva University. Dr. Buse, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing of your expertise and experience with us today. Thank you, Tom. And thank you to all the listeners out there. I wish you well. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of the AAOP podcast. We will see you next time.